Welcome to the Wednesday Bible Study uh, from the Broadcast Plaza and Teleport of the Rick and Bubba Show. I'm Rick Burgess, co-host of the Rick and Bubba Show and director of themanchurch.com. This is a hub that's designed for uh, men's uh, ministry. Kind of like uh, you go there, we got everything you need to implement a true men's discipleship strategy uh, in your community, in your church. Uh, Maybe you're wanting to put together your own small group. Uh, We can help you. Uh, you can contact us there. Now, if you want to come out and kind of see some things that are going on or places where I'll be speaking or members of, uh, of our team will be speaking with men's ministry, you can go to themanchurch.com, uh, and you'll see there where it says click here for, for uh, where manchurch services are taking place, and you can find uh, where we'll be speaking. But I can tell you some things that I'll be involved in. Uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, you're coming up um, on Friday, April the 9th, so if you're Watching this or listening to the Bible study on that week, I'll be there. It's a, this is their 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 big outreach. It's for for family. I mean, not just the men. You can bring your wife, your your children. It deals with fields, woods, water, uh, and they're going to have some exhibitions there that you can enjoy. Uh, so make plans to be with us. That is a ticketed event. So if you don't have a ticket, do uh, you need to get that at rickandbubba.com uh, under events. You can also find that at burgessministries.com under events. Uh, and then back to other man church opportunities. April the 22nd, uh, the First Baptist Church there in Opelika, Alabama. Opelika actually has gone through the first week of our discipleship strategy. They've gone through all 40 weeks of our first curriculum. They've already started our second curriculum, uh, and I'll be there kicking off um, uh, the next phase uh, for their their man church service. That's the high challenge part of what we do. And Charles Billingsley uh, and the entire band will be in concert with me coming up on April 22nd. That is also ticketed. It's five bucks, but... They need to know how many people are coming, and you can get that ticket uh, by going to BurgessMinistries.com under events. April the 25th, now I'll be at Rainbow Presbyterian Church in Gadsden, Alabama. This is their first man church. They're kicking off the men's discipleship strategy. Uh, coming up on April the 30th, uh, we have a forge, uh, forged men's event. That'll be going on in Somerville, Georgia. Uh, this, too, uh, is going to be a, a gathering of men an opportunity to plug into the men's discipleship strategy. So make plans to be there. On May the 2nd, I'll be uh, speaking at a man church also in Colquitt, Georgia, down in Colquitt County. Uh, They, too, will be kicking off uh, their first man church in the men's discipleship strategy. So if you'd like to see any of these, participate, find something near you, just go to BurgessMinistries.com, and you can look there under upcoming events. I do want to make you aware of the Gridiron Men's Conference that's coming up uh, in Huntsville, Alabama, this summer, Father's Day weekend. Uh, you can also find that information there and get your tickets and get groups of men together to join us. So let's open up in a, in a word of prayer, uh, and then we'll jump into the next phase of, phase of our Wednesday Bible Studies ongoing study uh, through the book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. Today we'll talk about God's goodness and severity. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. God, open yourself up to us. Help us to, to walk through your word today and understand, again, the proper balance between your goodness and your severity and and to understand this balance perfectly, uh, that we should be aware of both of these attributes of yours equally uh, as we walk through this today. Help us, to to those that are willing to seek you, uh, that you'll continue to reveal yourself to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And that is it. This is our 16th session uh, in the Knowing God series. If you want to go back and get others you missed, Two places you can do that, uh, right here on the Rick and Bubba YouTube channel. If you're watching uh, right now, uh, either live or archived, if you'll go to the playlist and look for the the Bible study archives there, you can find the other 15 sessions or any Bible study that we've documented there uh, from the past several years. Or you can go to BurgessMinistries.com and you can click on Listen and you'll see the Wednesday Bible study or the men's Bible study there and you can go through the audio archives. So today we're going to talk about God's goodness and severity. Now, some of this is going to feel a little repetitive. It did to me studying this. You can tell that J.I. Packer is is pointing that the Word of God is really trying to drive home now the proper balance because we've talked about God's goodness. We've talked about His grace. We've talked about His love. But we've also talked about His judgment. And last week, we talked about His wrath. So really, this this session today, it it seems that, that, that Packer is saying, now let's, let's spend a session or in the book a chapter uh, understanding how to balance these two attributes of God. So if you have your Bible or something with your Bible on it, uh, you see the Apostle Paul talking about this in Romans chapter 11, 
uh, in verse 22. I'm going to read a little more uh, than 22, but th- this is the heart of what he's talking about. Let me tell you what's going on when Paul's writing to the Christians in, in Rome. He wants them to understand the Gentiles about us being the wild branch that has been grafted in. And what he says, even though we need to understand God's goodness and his grace, the fact that he has grafted in the Gentiles, uh, he has now, through Jesus, uh, opened up the church age where Jew and Gentile uh, have equal opportunity at redemption in Christ. He wants to remind us that also God has been severe when he needed to with his chosen people, the Jewish people, So we need to understand as Gentiles not to abuse his goodness, not to abuse his grace, because he could could offer the same severity to the Gentiles just like he did uh, with the Jews. And and here's what he says, and let's start in 21, um, I, I think. Well, let's start in 20. He's talking now about God's chosen people, the Jewish people. He says, that is true, talking about, uh, that, that branches were broken off in, in verse 19 that, that I might be grafted in and talking to, to us, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. You remember the Jewish people rejected Jesus as Messiah. They, they rejected that. And he says, so God then went from his goodness to his severity. He had a severe response to their rejection of his son as Messiah. And, uh, and he goes on and says... Um, and in, in, in verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Now, this is Paul telling us what we already know. We are now in the church age, and through the redemption in Jesus Christ, we are now redeemed by grace through what? Our faith. And so he says, so, so you have been grafted in, and, and you, we need to remember that we stand fast through faith, so do not become proud So don't become full of yourself, Gentiles, now that you have been made equal with God's original chosen people. Be sure that you are not proud, arrogant about this, but you really should always remain in fear. See, we can't lose the the fear of God's uh, uh, judgment, his wrath, his severity. 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, talking about his chosen people, the Jewish people, neither will he spare you. And now we're in verse 22. Note then, meaning take note of both, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, the redeemed, the church, provided, I'd underline that, I'd put a highlighter on that, you continue in his kindness, provided that you do that. So, so here's Paul saying, look, you're going to be on the good side of God provided that you continue to be obedient and, 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 uh, to him and don't take this kindness that he showed you and begin to abuse it like the chosen people have done because if he dealt severity with his own chosen people, he won't have any problem treating the Gentiles uh, severe. So Paul wants the Christians in Rome not to really dwell on either one. Don't dwell just on his kindness and don't dwell only on his severity. You have the proper balance. You should have the proper balance. Be aware of the balance of both. We're to contemplate both equally. And what happens as human beings, as we talked about over the last several, week, several weeks, it's almost like we, own, we can't seem to pull this balance off. And, and we can't do it of our own will. That's why you got to Pursue God. You got you. You got to mature in the faith because I've heard people saying this already about last week's message about God's wrath, and you know what they said? Well, I remember growing up, and that's all you ever heard at church was God's wrath, and and you know what? That's not proper balance. Well, now what's happened in the modern church is you never hear about God's wrath. That's not balance either. What should be taking place is that we should be hearing about both of these things, His severity and His goodness equally, and we should never stop contemplating either one. Does that make sense? And that's, that's the point that Paul is trying to make in the book of Romans. So, so here's where we have the, 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 the problem. We either think of God as, and, 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 and J.I. Packer goes into this great analogy of Santa Claus theology. 
God becomes Santa Claus. We've talked about in here, the big man upstairs or, or something like that. Or we get into giant despair over the severity of God and we can't, get our, we can't pull ourselves out of that. And what he says is both are wrong. People say they believe in God, but they have no idea who it is that they believe in or what difference believing in him may make. Uh, you know, I, I had a conversation yesterday, and I could tell pretty quick, uh, trying to talk to a couple of young men, their concept of God was, it, it wasn't very informed. They, they really didn't know much about God other than just this kind of unknown force, uh, meaning so a lot of people say they believe in God, but they don't have any idea what they mean when they say that. Uh, and, what, and, and so you think, well, if people believe in God, but they... They don't really have any idea what they believe in or what difference believing in him may make. What lies at the root of this confusion? And where is the starting point for setting them straight? So if somebody's confused about God or you're confused about God, what, what's the root of this confusion? And what's the starting point for me to understand or this whole book is talking about to know God in the proper way? One is that people have gotten into a practice of following private religious hunches rather than learning of God from his own word. Let's try this again. How many times have we said this? If you want to know about God, here's an idea. Maybe you should dive into his revelation that he uh, inspired in this holy book. I'm holding a copy of the Holy Bible. God tells us everything we could possibly ever want to know about him right here. You know, I've, I've talked about this before, especially dealing with the men's ministry. And let me tell you, I was the biggest offender. Everything I talk about starts with me because I have made all these mistakes and I'm trying to help you either not to make them or not to continue to make them because I've been there. And what it was is, my goodness, if you could come up with a book somewhere for me to read that was authored by some celebrity or a biography of some same famous person or maybe some novel written by a writer that could tell a good story or, man, I, I would go out there and consume it. And then you go, oh, by the way, I have a book. Who's the author? God. And I was like, well, I don't really have any interest in that. So, so God has authored this holy word about us, about him, and about the, really everything that you're searching for and so the first thing that, that Packer says is the first problem that causes confusion is, is we haven't taken the time uh, to, to, to go into the Word of God and see it for ourselves. This is the whole thing about the Reformation. I mean, Luther was saying, I want the farm boy to be able to read the Bible. And so we, that's taken place. God has allowed that to happen for it to be you know, interpreted into your own language to be made available for you anywhere you want to get one. And what, what a lot of people have done, and the reason why they're confused about God, is they've gotten into some denominational hunches, and they kind of hear some, some general things about God, and that's the extent to which we go to know about God. We just grab a few general statements here or there where we can find one, when really we should dive into His Word and find out who God says He is. How about God saying who He is? So that's one problem. He says, also, we, we, we got to get away from what we feel about God but other than what the Bible actually says about God. Boy, you see a lot of that going on now. Man, feelings rule the day now. And what does the, the very Bible that we're ignoring because we want to have our feelings about God, what does this Word of God say about following your feelings, following your heart? Don't do it. The Word of God says that the human heart is full of deceit. And the last thing you need to do is to follow your emotions and your feelings. This word says not to do exactly what we do while ignoring the word. See, if, if we knew the word, we'd know not to do that. Because, because the Bible says that the, 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 the human heart and feelings and emotions carry you in all the wrong directions. So that's not what we're supposed to base uh, our life on. That's not, we don't look through the lens of our emotions and the lens of our feelings. Uh, find out. Study what the Word... I, I sat down with these young men yesterday and they had all these questions that they were wanting to talk to me about the, about the Christian faith. And the first thing I said is, how much do you know the Bible? You know what they said? None. I said, so you want to sit down and have a discussion about things that you may have... Because the, the premise was they were asking me questions about the faith. I was all in. 
But they couldn't even ask questions because they had never even looked at the Word of God. They didn't know anything about it. I, I didn't even know where to begin. And before I knew it, it just turned into a debate on whether God exists or not. And I said, guys, I love you, but you really have walked into a conversation with me about the Bible without ever reading the Bible. I, 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 think, I, think, we, I think we've got a huge waste of time going here. And uh, so it didn't end well. But I mean, but, but that, that's, that's the problem. I, I need to first, now you may have questions about the Word of God. I have. I've had questions about that. I had to learn and mature, but at least get into the Word of God. Guy called the show, uh, I guess what, it's been a couple weeks now, and I loved, I loved his attitude. He said, there's so many things about the Bible I don't understand, and you're, you were talking about the process of growing spiritually. Where should I begin? I said, well, let me tell you where not to begin, of, of spending time on all the things you don't understand. Let me give you a tip. If you'll jump into the Word of God and start on the concepts that you can easily understand, that, that God is crystal clear on, and I always suggest that people start with the Gospel of John. I think that's where I would start. If you'll concentrate on the things that the Bible is crystal clear on, that anybody can comprehend and understand, you'll spend years on that, applying those things to your life and learning those and applying those. And as you learn those and you mature in your faith, then the rest of the Bible God will open up to you as well, the things you don't understand. And what we do a lot of times is use the things we don't understand as an excuse not to look at all. And that's a huge mistake. And somebody needed to hear that today because that was not planned to say. Somebody needed to hear that. I, I hope that was an epiphany for somebody that's listening to this right now or watching that. But that, let me just tell you, that's how, I, that's how it changed for me, and it'll work for you as well because the, the, the Word of God has power of its own. But start by going and looking at the things you can easily understand, and it'll take you a while to be done with all that before you get to the other. The next thing is, he says um, um, uh, that, um, that the, the second answer is that modern people, talking about the Western church, modern people think all religions as equal and equivalent. They draw their ideas about God from pagan as well as Christian sources, and we have to try to show people the uniqueness and the finality of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's last word to mouth, to man, I mean. So, where we make a mistake, too, the reason why we don't know God and we don't know how to balance God is we take God and then we let all these pagan, other false religions kind of mix in. And what we need to understand is, no, there is no other religion that's anything like Christianity. This was also part of yesterday's conversation. You know, we start this thing about all these different religions. I said, I just have to stop you right there. Christianity is not to be lumped in with the other false religions. That's, that's not true. I said, our faith is not due, our faith is done. We just celebrated this. We, 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 we worship a God who came to us when we could not come to him, and he says, I will now complete full righteousness that you can't do. I will complete it for you, and then I will offer it to you in its complete form for you to repent, submit to, and be made fully righteous our God did it for us. All the other religions tell you to do things, and hopefully you've done enough. And I said, so there, there is, there's a uniqueness to, to followers of Jesus that is unlike any other religion in the world. So when people say, well, you know, it's just like all religions are basically the same, that's incorrect. That's a lie from the pits of hell. We need to understand that there's a uniqueness and a finality to Christianity that the other religions do not have. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, period. And we don't, we don't need to go around apologizing for that. What we need to do is say, hey, we, 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 are, we, we believe in a faith in a God that comes to you and redeems you, and he's trying to deliver us out of the pits of hell. He's not trying to. He's taken all the different things in, that we're supposed to do and has completed them, and then once we repent of our sins and come under his authority, then we abide in him and he abides in us and then he begins to change us and our obedience flows from him, not from a, a list of a thousand rules and a, a burdensome law that we can't get out from under and us hoping that we can do enough good things to be good enough to stand in front of a perfect God. No human being can take that on. So the God that we serve came to us because we could not come to him and he solved our problem. That's not like the other religions. We don't, we don't have a bunch of do's and don'ts. We have obedience, 
that flows from our relationship with him, but the, the very obedience that we practice comes from the power that he provides. So we must quit allowing our faith to be combined or in some stew that is brewing of multiple religions, and we just have Christianity, and we throw ours in there with all these others. That's a mistake. And that's one of the problems why we don't understand the balance of God's goodness and his severity. A third answer is that people have ceased to recognize the reality of our own sinfulness, which imparts a degree of perversity and also has us at odds with God. There, there's that, that enmity between us and God. Remember, that's the problem. See, if we don't recognize, one of the reasons why we can't balance his goodness and his severity, we can't balance God as he is, and we talked about this um, uh, about we must understand God's wrath to understand the joy of what we celebrate uh, celebrated on Resurrection Sunday and what we celebrated on Good Friday about the redemption. If you don't understand the, the wretchedness of our sinful condition, then again, God's grace and his goodness doesn't mean a whole lot to you. And what else? So his goodness doesn't mean much to me because I don't think I'm all that bad, and his severity doesn't really worry me because I think I'm probably good. I'm not worried about his severity or his goodness because I think I'm good. And that, too, is a grotesque error for us to make. Uh, it it makes, uh, makes us self-distrustful. It makes us open to correction by the Word of God if we understand that we got to stop trusting ourselves, trusting our feelings, trusting our flesh. If we can get to the point we understand our wretchedness, we understand our sinfulness, then we stop trusting that side of us and we're open to the Word of God correcting us because we understand that we're in need of correction. But if you don't think that, then the Word of God is never going to work for you. And then there's a fourth answer and, and said it's no less basic than the three already given. It says that people today are in a habit of disassociating the thought of God's goodness from that of His severity. We must seek to wean them from this habit, talking about those that we're discipling, since nothing but misbelief is possible as long as this practice persists. I'll say it again. We must stop the habit of disassociating the thought of God's goodness from that of his severity. we got to stop that. His goodness and his severity actually work in perfect concert. They both belong in God's character, and we must stop acting like they can't be together. So, he talks about uh, God's goodness, us, us understanding that. So let's, let's go there first, then we'll get to God's uh, severity. So remember, we, we're leaving this thought that either God is Santa Claus or he's some tyrant that makes us feel in despair. He's neither. He's the, he's the, the proper balance of goodness and severity. So let's talk about his goodness first. Goodness in God, as in human beings, means something to be admired, something attractive, something praiseworthy. Uh, when the biblical writers called God good, they were thinking in general of those moral qualities which prompt his people to call him perfect, which he is, in particular, in particular of the generosity which moves them to call him merciful and gracious and to speak of his love. So he says, I'm going to elaborate that. And this is something that was a big... Uh, wake up for me this week, how he talks about generosity is really where all these things flow from. So, so the Bible's constantly ringing the changes on the theme of the moral perfection of God, and he declared that in his own words, and he verified it in the experience of his people. When God stood with Moses on Sinai and proclaimed the name, that, that of course revealed uh, his character, of the Lord, that is God and his people's Jehovah, the the sovereign Savior, who, who, who he says this of himself, I am what I am. This all helps in the covenant of grace because he, he is, he's the beginning, he's the end, he's it. And, and, and what, he, what he said was this, the Lord of the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, underline that, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And then here comes the, the, the balance again. Because right now we're like, yeah, man, this is fantastic. And it is great. These are things that are praiseworthy. But then Moses says this in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Write that down. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. 
he ends it by saying this, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So here we are saying that the, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, which by the way, that doesn't mean never to anger, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And this proclaiming of God's moral perfection was carried out as the fulfillment of his promise to make all his goodness pass before Moses. You'll see this conversation with Moses in Exodus 33, verse 19. All the particular perfections are mentioned here, all that go with him. God's truthfulness, trustworthiness, his unfailing justice and wisdom, his tenderness, forbearance, uh, his, his noble kindness, his holiness, which nobody likes to talk about anymore, his love, these things together make up God's goodness in the overall sense of the sum total of his revealed excellences. So all these things describe God's goodness. So here's what David said in 2 Samuel 22, uh, 31. He also talked about this in Psalm, uh, Psalms 18.30. So 2 Samuel 22.31 and Psalms 18.30, here's what David declared. As for God, his way is perfect. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. That's more of Psalms 18. So really, David's uh, declaration of how he had himself proved that God's faithful to his promises and all sufficient as a shield and defender, and every child of God who has not forfeited his birthright by backsliding enjoys a parallel experience. So, so here, here's what we find out. There's more to be said. Within the cluster of God's moral perfection, and this is the one that really, really was a big epiphany for me this week, there's one in particular to which the term goodness points, the quality which God especially singled out from the whole when proclaiming all his goodness to Moses. He spoke of himself as abundant in goodness and truth. That's in Exodus 34, 6 that we just talked about. This is the quality of generosity. You say, well, Rick, why does generosity seem to be the one that we need to get the most? Because generosity means a disposition to give to others in a way which has no motive. It is not limited by what the recipients deserve, but it consistently goes beyond it. To be generous is that you give somebody something they don't deserve. And to go be, you know, if you just go, well, I will give to people as they deserve it, well, then it keeps limiting it. You may say this person's awful. This person doesn't deserve anything. No, God's generosity says, I'm going to offer all my goodness to those that don't deserve it. That, that's, that's, if, you, if you really land there, generosity is, so to speak, the focal point of God's moral perfection. It is the quality which determines how all God's other excellences are to be displayed. God is abundant in goodness. And if you, if you look, we're talking about this in the, in the Old Testament. There's, there's a Latin word here called ultra bonus. It, it's a Latin speaking, uh, if you have theologians used that long ago, and what it meant is for it to be spontaneously good, overflowing with generosity. And then, of course, if you look to the New Testament, the word grace is where we go. This also means God's generosity. You know, grace means free favor. God's given you favor freely through his grace. He's generous, and that covers every act of divine generosity of whatever kind, and hence distinguishes between the common grace of creation preservation. This is important. Don't let me get too deep. Hang on. And all the blessings of this life. And then there's the special grace manifested in the economy of salvation. The point to contrast the most between the common and the special means that all benefit from the former, but not all are touched by the latter, meaning everybody, no matter what their situation, to some degree benefits from God's common grace. You needed food today and you got it. Uh, you were sick and you, got, and you, you, you found medical care. You needed shelter and it was provided. Uh, 
You, you know, the, these are things that are common grace. The, the redeemed and the unredeemed have access to that part of God's goodness, whether they recognize it or not. Does that make sense? That's the common grace. That's just the fact that there's things provided for you in this fallen creation, no matter what your situation is as far as redemption is concerned. But then the special grace, that's for the redeemed. That, that's different. The special grace is, is, is the one that involves salvation. And so the biblical way of putting the distinction between common grace of God, common generosity, and special generosity is to say it this way, okay? God is good to all in some ways, but he's also generous to some in all ways. You with me? So which one are we talking about with the special grace? The latter. Those that have been redeemed... God's not just good in some ways. To those that have been redeemed, God is, 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 gener- is generous to those in all ways. Why? Because eternal life goes with it. The common grace does not provide, it might provide you, a, it's just taking care of your basic needs. But the special grace is taking care of your spiritual need, and that is the ultimate generosity from God. God's generosity in bestowing natural blessings is a claim. You see this in Psalms 145. The Lord is good to all, and he has compassion on all he has made. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Now, now you also can compare that in the New Testament. Uh, there's some commentary about this uh, in Acts 14, 17. So, so, so the psalmist points that since God controls all that happens in the world, every meal, every pleasure, every possession— every bit of sun, every night's sleep, every moment of health and safety, everything else that sustains and enriches life is a divine gift from God. How abundant these gifts are. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Remember singing that in the children's song? And it, and it will surprise you uh, what the Lord has done when you realize how many things he's provided to you when you didn't do anything. But the mercies of God on the natural level, however abundant they may be, are overshadowed by the greater mercy of the spiritual redemption. Everybody with me? I mean, the common grace of God, that's great, and and he should receive praise for that. But when it comes to the special grace, that that giant generosity, that only comes with spiritual redemption because it involves eternal life. So the singers of Israel summon uh, the people to give thanks to, to God because, and there's so many places in the Old Testament that talk about this. He is good, and his love endures forever. And they sang this, you see this in Psalms 106, 107, 118, 136. Uh, and then you also see it in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 5 and uh, verse 13, chapter 7 and verse 3. Jeremiah speaks of this in uh, chapter 33, uh, verse 11. It was usually of redemptive mercies that they're thinking, mercies such as God's mighty acts in saving them from Egypt. Uh, You know, God, he is good and his love endures for us forever. That's in Psalms 106, verse 2. You'll also find it in, uh, in 136, there in Psalms 106. His willingness to forbear and forgive when his servants fall into sin, you find that in Psalms 86, verse 5. His readiness to teach people his way, Psalms 119, verse 68. And the goodness to which Paul was referring, now we're in the New Testament that we just read, in Romans eleven twenty-two, when we started this, this study, was God's mercy in grafting wild Gentiles into his olive tree. That is, the fellowship of his covenant people, the community of saved believers. So you got the Old Testament, and they say God is good, his love endures forever. Well, they're mainly talking about the redempted things of what God kept delivering from, their, their captivity, all these different things. The enemies that came against them were they would, they would not be in his favor and then he would let them be suffer. Then they would come out of the suffering and he would deliver them and they would sing, sing all this. But when Paul gets into Romans chapter 11, verses 22, when he's talking about his kindness and severity, what he's saying now is to the Gentiles, we have been grafted in to God's olive tree and now we are able to, the ultimate goodness has taken place, and that's redemption for all who repent. God's now pouring out a generosity that even exceeds what, uh, what they were singing about in the Old Testament. 
and, and now the prophets who were looking forward to this ultimate generosity, Paul's saying to the Christians in Rome, it's here. Jesus has done it, and you're part of it, but you don't th start thinking too highly of yourself because we have been graciously grafted in and share the blessings with God's original chosen people. And so that, that's kind of a, a, a look at God's goodness. So now let's look at God's severity. So now let's look at his severity. What, what also is in play if you're not found in the proper place with his goodness. So, um, so Paul again in, in Romans eleven twenty two, what, what does what does what is the word that Paul's using about God's severity here? It, it literally means a cutting off. You know, think of, you know, there's a lot of analogies Jesus in John fifteen of talking about branches and vines and trees, and so Paul's using a word, but he says God's severity when he means about God's severity, but he also will cut people off and. And that's the withdrawal of the goodness. So you have the goodness, and then the severity is when God withdraws his goodness from those who have spurned it. It reminds us of the fact about God which uh, he declared when he proclaimed his name to Moses, namely that his abounding love and faithfulness, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So here's God telling Moses about his, his abounding in love and his abounding in faithfulness. However, if you reject my love and you reject my goodness, I will not leave that unpunished. Look what Paul says. He takes the occasion uh, from this to warn the Gentile Christian readers that if they should lapse as Israel had lapsed, God would cut them off too. Listen to what he says. We read this earlier. You stand fast only through faith, so do not become proud, but stand in awe or in fear of God. For if God did not spare the natural branches, back to that analogy again, because he's talking about being cut off, neither will he spare you. The principle which Paul's applying here is that behind every display of divine goodness stands a threat of severity and judgment. If that goodness is scorned, if we do not let it draw us to God in gratitude and in responsive love, we have only ourselves to blame when God turns against us. It goes back to what I said a few weeks ago about uh, the atheist, and most atheists I meet, by the way, are just agnostics because they don't know the difference in being an atheist and an agnostic. But, but, but what, what I found was he didn't understand God. He was upset with a God that he didn't know about because he said, I, 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 can't, I don't like this God that he basically said is severe. He's severe to people that don't believe what he wants them to believe. And I said, yeah, but you're ignoring God's goodness. No, you see God as casting people into hell, but what you don't understand is we are casting ourselves to hell because we have scorned or spurned his opportunity he's given us to experience his goodness through redemption and his grace and his mercy. Those of us that, that end up in hell, we have ourselves to blame, not God. We have ourselves to blame because we should have understood that if you reject God's goodness, then you have called down God's severity on you. And, and we're talking about eternity here. We're not talking about how sometimes you have good days, sometimes you have bad days. We're talking about the big picture here. So he said, if, 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 uh, but if while tearing strips off others, and this is important the way we have to look at this, because what happens now is we normally will take this attitude even if we get it and we don't look at ourselves balancing God's goodness and severity, what do we begin to do? And human beings just do this. We begin to look to others. You know, there's nothing worse for you to hear a message and your attitude always is, you know, so-and-so needs to hear this. No, we need to hear it. Make, make sure you understand that God is speaking to you and is speaking to me even as I teach it. So if we're, if we're, gonna, if we're looking at others saying, uh, you know, that, 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 yeah, you're doing this. What we're told by the Apostle Paul is that we need to turn to ourselves. And here's what Paul says You show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, and therefore, and thereby, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against you. Romans 2 1 through 5. So we need to be careful. That, that our whole look at even understanding this isn't that we keep picturing other people that need to know this. No, you need to know this, and I need to know this. And, and, and Paul says we need to be humble, we need to be thankful, understand our own wretchedness, because if we 
are going to show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, and he's tolerating us, and he's patient with us, and we're going to stay stubborn, and we're going to stay unrepentant with things in our life, and we're not going to see things as sin that are sin. All we're doing now, as opposed to receiving God's goodness, we're storing up God's wrath. That's Romans chapter 2, and read verses 1 through 5. So Paul tells the Roman Christians that God's goodness is their portion only on a certain condition. Remember what he said back in Romans 11? Provided that you continue in his kindness. So if you're not set up and living your life that should receive God's kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. And that's that word he was talking about, uh, about, about being cut off. That's the severity of God that he's talking about. So, so Paul says those who decline to respond to God's goodness by repentance and faith and trust and submission to his will cannot wonder or complain if sooner or later the tokens of his goodness are withdrawn. The opportunity of benefiting from them ends and retribution now comes into your life. So God offers his goodness. He offers the opportunity to repent. He offers us to be faithful. He offers us to submit to, to his authority. You know, Romans 10, 9 and 10, if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we submit to his authority, we repent of our sins, and, and we leave depending on ourselves and place the faith in him and him alone, then we are saved by grace through faith. And we're under his authority. Now, if we and then that means what? His goodness is heaped on us. Now, if we reject that, and we reject it, then what we're doing is that we now say, then we'll take the severity of God. We'll be cut off. We'll take, we'll take the wrath. So this opportunity, and you say, well, Rick, how long does this opportunity exist for me to, to, to repent? How, how long does it do I have to submit to the authority of God? How long? How long? I don't know. I don't know how long you're going to live, and I don't know how long the church age is going to last, but I do know that it will end. This church age, you know, I've said this to you guys before, but I'll do it again. Picture the church age is this, my hand is, is the hand of God, and I'm turning a faucet on, and what flows from that faucet is my goodness and my grace. Okay? And it's flowing. There is a time coming that only the Father knows where he will take the faucet of grace, the church age, and, and many believe the scriptures seem to say there's a certain number of Gentiles that are going to come in, but, but I don't know, but we do know, and we'll talk about this, he's delaying because of his kindness and his mercy. But there's going to come a point that that's going to end. Remember, slow to anger doesn't mean to never anger. Being, uh, you know, being um, uh, patient doesn't mean that it, the patience never ends. And he will cut off the faucet of grace that is flowing now from heaven and available to all who repent, and then all that's left then is the severity of God, and then it will be God's wrath. So, so God is not impatient in his severity. He, he, he's not like us where we get mad and we just launch. Listen to what the Bible says about, about God. We've already mentioned he's slow to anger. doesn't mean never to anger. Uh, you find that in Nehemiah uh, chapter 9, verse 17. Psalm 103, verse 8, Psalm 145, verse 8, Joel, chapter 2, verse 13, and, of course, uh, John, uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 2. So we find out that God is slow to anger. He is long-suffering. We find this in Moses, Exodus 34, 6, Numbers 14, 18, Psalms 86, 15. The Bible makes much of the patience and the forbearance of God in postponing merited judgment in order to extend the day of grace and give more opportunity for repentance. What did Peter tell us? He said, when the earth was corrupt and crying out for judgment, nevertheless, the long-suffering of God waited even in the days of Noah. See, everybody else talks about the severity of God you know, and we had a great message on this at the church that I attend not too long ago. But what we always forget, even when it comes to God's destruction of the world by water, he killed everybody except for eight people. You forget how many years these people had to repent. 
I mean, they watched Noah build the ark and him tell them why he was building it for 120 years. I mean, do you think that was God, you know, being a kind of a knee-jerk reaction? 120 years they watched this man in their community and in their world build this thing, and he's telling them why he's building it, and they mock him and they laugh at him for 120 years. So God does postpone judgment, but it doesn't mean it's never going to happen. Peter reminds us about that. Uh, and, 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 and then you look again at Romans 9.22. Paul tells us that down the course of history, God has endured with much long-suffering us, the vessels of wrath. We are fitted for destruction. Yet in Romans 9, Paul says, but God endured us. Have you ever had to do that going, I don't know how much longer I can endure these people. We do know that in Genesis chapter 6, God says that at some point he regretted even making us. We were so intolerable. So, but, but, but Paul says he endures us because he is gracious, because he is good, but it doesn't mean that his wrath or his severity never comes. What does Peter say again? You know this from 2 Peter 3, 9. We talked about this in our study of First and Second Peter. He explains to the first century readers that, that, that the, why the promised return of Christ to judgment has not happened yet is that God is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Remember Peter trying to give the in Second Peter, look, y'all don't I know a lot of you want to know where Jesus is and why he hasn't come back. Be careful with that, because the reason why God is long suffering with this, he's trying to give everybody their best shot to repent. He doesn't desire that his children be destroyed and all they receive is his severity. He's offering his goodness for a period of time, an extremely long period of time, to give us our best shot. You don't have any complaint with God, he's been incredibly long-suffering. The, the, the grace and long-suffering that he's offered me when I was going through the 13 years of blasphemy and rebellion and destruction, how he tolerated me through that period of time, it, I'm in awe of that and I'm thankful because I deserve and still deserve for God to have denied me repentance. That He should have wiped, you know, even with the things I've been through, I can't believe that worse things haven't happened to me. Because I deserve God's severity. I don't deserve his goodness. But he's offered me his goodness, and I'm thankful for that. And I'll take it. I can't do it. But God says, Rick, I am, I, am, I, am, I, have, I am wrath and I am goodness. And you know what we do? We pick which one we're going to take. And I, I, was, I would deserved severity, but I'm so thankful that I was also offered goodness. And I got no gripe with God. Because he has treated me, like we said, what's his generosity? He, is, he has been generous to me beyond anything that I ever truly merited on my best day. I love what Adrian Rogers said, and this is a powerful man of God. He said, I wouldn't present my best 15 minutes in the presence of a holy God. My best 15 minutes I could muster would not belong in his presence. How gracious is our Lord. The patience of God and giving a chance to repent. You'll also find this, look at Revelation, the Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Before judgment finally falls is one of the marvels of the Bible story. It is no wonder that the New Testament stresses that long-suffering is a Christian virtue and duty. It is, in truth, a part of the image of God. So when we're long-suffering, who are we emulating? The God we serve the Lord that saved us. Galatians 5, verse 22, Ephesians 4, verse 2, Colossians 3, verse 12. So what's our response to this? Well, the first one is, is what I just said. Appreciate the goodness of God. Come on, man. I mean, do I have to sell you on that at this point? Appreciate the goodness of God. Count your blessings. Learn not to take natural benefits and endowments and pleasures for granted. Learn to thank God for them all. Do not slight the Bible or the gospel of Jesus Christ by an attitude of being casual toward the goodness of God or the severity. We shouldn't be casual toward either one. I had a, I had a challenge that was put before me one day, and uh, I believe it was, it, was, um, it was Gary Habermas. And do you remember this? Uh, he, he stood there, uh, and he was at the church where I was, and he was preaching to us, and he was doing apologetics about the resurrection of Jesus. 
and the proof of it and how much evidence there is for it. And he said, I'm going to say something to this church body. And there was probably 2,000 people there. And he said, and when I say this, most all of you are going to agree with me. But the sad part is only a handful of you actually do it. <laughs> you know, how, how many times do we agree with something? We just don't do it. And what he said is, I want you to go into a time of prayer the next time you pray. And I want you to spend the first 10 minutes of your prayer doing nothing but thanking God. Don't ask for anything. Don't, don't bring anything to the table. Just do nothing but thank him, thank him, thank him, and thank him. And he says, and everybody in here just nodded their head and said, you're right. He said, but only a handful of you will ever do that. I would challenge you to do that. I, I, I don't do it as often as I should, and I'm being convicted of that again right now. But when I do it, it's nothing compared to what he deserves. The next thing, so we appreciate the goodness of God. Next thing, what? Appreciate the patience of God. Just hit on that again. Think how he has tolerated us. Think about he, what he's gone through, what, what, how many times you blasphemed him, how many times you mistreated him, and how patient he has been with you. Let's face it, most of our life, let's just call it, not some of it, most of our life is unworthy of him. Most of it. Not some of it. Most of it. And he continues to be patient with us. Learn to, I love this word, learn to marvel at God's patience. Marvel at it. I remember the time it came to me, and you've heard me talk about the death of my youngest son, a terrible thing to go through. But God's goodness, even through all that, is I cannot, I cannot comprehend how good he's been. And when I think of the way that I have treated him, I'm thankful that he's allowed me to have any children for any period of time. Because, I mean, really, he had the right to kill all of them. Uh, to kill me, to, to, to offer me nothing. It, it, you realize, if God said to me right now, and I'm only speaking to myself, but I'm going to bet you might be in the same situation by the way you've lived your life. I know by the way I've lived mine. If God were to say to me today, here's the deal. I'm done. There'll be no more blessings for you the rest of your life. The rest of your life on this earth is going to be miserable. Okay, and, I, and I'm going to let you live out more years than you're probably going to want to live. But I want you to know this. I still forgave you for the way you treated me. I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to invite you into my presence, and you will spend eternity fully righteous in front of me. But I'm doing nothing else. We're done with anything else. Well, see, I don't deserve that. That's still incredibly gracious that he's going to redeem me. So where do we get off complaining about difficulties that we go through? We brought those things on ourselves. It's his redemption and his patience that I marvel at, not the severity of difficult things in a fallen, sinful place where I have lived the majority of my life as a wretched sinner. The last thing before we close, appreciate the discipline of God. That's a tough one, isn't it? He is both your upholder and the last analysis, your environment. All things come from him. And if you have tasted his goodness every day of your life, has the experience led you to repentance and faith in Christ? If not, if his goodness hasn't brought you to redemption, then you stand under the threat of his severity. Because can I tell you this, speaking for somebody who's done it, God loves you enough. He will allow anything to happen to give you your best shot at redemption. So what I would do if I was you, I would allow his goodness to bring me to repentance. Because if his goodness doesn't do it, then he'll try his severity and see if that'll do it. Because he will give you your best shot. And you're picking which one of those you want by the way you respond. I love what uh, George Whitfield said. He said, but if now he, talking about God, puts thorns in your bed, it is only to awaken you from the sleep of spiritual death and to make you rise up and seek his mercy. I love that. Yeah, you know, God loves you enough. You may put thorns in your bed to make you so uncomfortable you'll wake up. C.S. Lewis said pain and suffering, God's severity, pain and suffering is God's megaphone 
for a sleeping world. So he'll try that too. Or if you are a devout follower of Jesus and he still puts thorns in your bed, it is only to keep you from falling into some sort of complacency and to ensure you to continue in his goodness by letting your sense of need bring you back constantly into self-abasement and faith to seek his face. This kindly discipline is what God's severity touches. He allows it to touch us for a moment. In the context still of his goodness, it's meant to keep us from having to bear the full brunt of that severity apart from that context. It is a discipline of love, and it must be received accordingly. Hebrews 12, 5. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. What did the psalmist in Psalms 119 say? It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might, might learn your decrees. It was good for me. I love that, what J.I. Packer says. God may allow his severity to touch you so that you never have to receive the full brunt of it. Because unless we stand unredeemed when the day of judgment comes, you've never received the full brunt of his severity. You've only been touched by it. And you, some of you are saying, Rick, I don't know if I like this theology. Sorry. It's biblical. Does God allow bad things to happen to you and me? Yes. Because he could stop it. So what you have to ask is, why is he allowing it? Well, for our own good. Most times for our own good. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, um, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If, you, if you've ever read this uh, book of the Bible, you see Paul talking about this thorn that he could not get removed in his flesh. Here's what he said. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, underline that, or to keep me humble, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, he's talking about that God had been working with him and he had seen this great vision of the third heaven. And he said, because you are working in me and my ministry is moving forward and you've allowed me to see you in a way, it would be real easy for me to become arrogant about what I've become as, uh, as the Apostle Paul. So to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, underline this again, to keep me from becoming conceited. So there's the reason. Why is God allowing this touch of his severity? To keep Paul humble. To keep taking him back, to remind him, because he says this, what? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But you said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm touching you with my severity, Paul, to keep you humble, to remind you of my goodness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I'm content with all this because I understand what he's teaching. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So there's the balance of God's severity and his goodness. And they both work in perfect concert. And we should not obsess over either one. Be thankful for the goodness and receive the goodness. Understand that the severity of God may touch us and that too be an act of his goodness because it may be used to draw us closer to him, to humble us. But remember, even the touch now of God's severity is being used to protect you and me from experiencing the full brunt of his severity. We serve an incredible God. And maybe right now as we enter into a time of prayer, you need to do a little business with him. Lord Jesus, thank you for the message today. Thank you for helping us to understand you and knowing in the middle of, this all, in the middle of all this, that you have not hid yourself from us, if only we should seek you. And help us, Lord, to understand who you are so that we know how to respond to the moments that we live in and understand and, and look to you to ask the question, 
what are you teaching me? And may those who need to repent right now, Lord, that they will repent right now and, and submit to your authority and repent of sin and, and acknowledge you as their Lord and their Savior and to be thankful for the goodness of the grace and mercy that you offer all who repent so that none would have to perish. We pray these things, Lord, in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being with us. If you need me, I can help you. Rick at rickandbubba.com. Lord willing, we'll talk to you next week.